Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. My guest this week is Ben Elijah. He is uh, an author. He's written an excellent productivity book that we'll talk about in one second. How's it going, Ben? Really, really good. Really, really good. Just settling into a nice uh, Sunday evening in London and uh, freezing accordingly. How, how, what is the temperature there? Uh, well, the temperature here is, um, and you'll forgive me, I don't do Fahrenheit, but it's six degrees Celsius. Um, so I guess early 40s Fahrenheit, perhaps. Let's see. Which is cold du- for me. Duck, duck, go. Six degrees Celsius <laughs> in Fahrenheit. I'm curious now. Yeah, me too, because that sounds terribly warm to me right now. <laughs> Yeah, that's 42 degrees here. It's negative 20 here, uh, which is, for wow. you, that is negative 28 degrees Celsius. So that's that's brutal. That's, yeah, that's horrific. I let my so dog, I, I let a, a 70-pound pit bull run down a hill this morning to go to the bathroom. And at the bottom of the hill, she cut her her paw on the ice and could not come back up. And at... 15 minutes after I'd gotten out of bed, I had to throw on a robe and tennis shoes and a hat and run down the hill and carry a 70-pound dog up 20 yards of ice. We fell five times. We were both bleeding. Uh, We got each other patched up, and we're okay now. But yes, brutal is a good word. What what are you doing talking to me? It sounds like you need to be in a hospital. Uh, I did that already. I'm back. (laughs) Right, fair enough. Urgent care was, was fast. They, they expect us now. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, I, I guess I'm feeling a little warmer now, so that's uh, thank you. That's my goal in life, is to make everyone else feel warm. So tell us about your book. Wow, okay, so um, it came out um, about a year ago, and um, it's uh, it's my first book, actually, so um, this is the one where you make all of the, uh, all of the mistakes, uh, but um, it's... It, I guess it really it came out of a, a bit of a an issue that I had with a lot of books on self improvement and personal productivity and yeah, yeah, yeah. insert buzzword du jour here I guess <laughs> um, and that I think a lot of them they're not I this is a, just my opinion um, and I don't want to upset anyone by saying this but equally I kind of felt that a lot of them are written not necessarily to help people but more to sell coaching I guess. Yeah. Um, or, or at least to satisfy some agenda that doesn't necessarily relate to the well-being of the of the reader, and you know, so you can you can read these incredible books, um, and I'm not going to name names, but you know, there's some fantastic books that are out there, but it won't help you change, and it won't, it didn't help me to, you know, make a big difference, and I was very fortunate in that, um, you know, I'm from a reasonably scientific background, so you know, I can tinker and experiment. Um, and I came up with a bunch of things that work well for me. But um, I guess I also did a lot of research into the way that people form habits and the way that people internalize behaviors. And I wanted to write this book um, using some of that research so that it would be easy to adopt. Um, so the whole idea of um, a concept in the book called the habit loop, actually, it's not in my book. This is a, a, a term that's used in psychology and has been for a very long time now. Um, But it forms the structure of the book. So there are eight distinct habits. Um, 
And the idea is, is that you'll, you know, you could even spend six months just working on habit one and that's absolutely fine. But when you've internalized it, when it's become a habit, then work on habit two and then three and so forth. And by the time that you're done, hopefully, um, you'll be working a lot more effectively, but you won't have to fight yourself and, you know, try to use an awful lot of self-discipline to do it. Um, at least that's the goal of the book. So, uh, um, I know it's worked well for a lot of people. Some people it's maybe taking a bit more effort, but, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's the book. So the book is called The Productivity Habits, and it kind mm-hmm. of, it applies what you're talking about, like actual habit forming or creation modifying uh, with kind of uh, the original David Allen getting things done principles. Would that be fair? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. Um, getting things done was a huge inspiration for the book, and um, it's been a process which has helped me out enormously. And if you're familiar with GTD, there's a lot in the book which will which will feel familiar, um, and that's deliberate because, quite frankly, well, you know, I like to think that David Allen um, identified this concept, this idea that, um, you know, your brain is not there to store information; your brain is there to create information, um, and I wanted to sort of, you know, talk about that, but riff on it really, talking about the structure of getting things done but also with a lot of uh, a lot of new ideas as well which um, uh, are in the book yeah and I think you did a great job of that I found the book um, not not to just be overly flattering but I found it extremely oh, no, well written. you're more than welcome you're more than welcome to be overly flattering but <laughs> I, I'm sure I can I'm sure I can handle it get for for the genre for the uh, the kind of it would be classified at borders as self-help and, uh, and that genre is usually unreadable to me, uh, mm. business speak and, uh, and all of these, your, your prose flows well, even in a very, uh, analytic sense. And I loved it. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Yeah. so let me talk momentarily about the actual book, the physical book. Um, it's beautiful. It's uh, it's shaped like a moleskin. It has the uh, the moleskin like uh, wrapper or like the band that holds it in place and the bookmark. And it's it's uh, heavy stock. It's beautiful to to feel and fun to read. Um, how did how did that part come about? Well, that's um, down to the publisher actually. Um, so they have this series of books which are similar, um, not necessarily similar in theme, but similar in scope. Um, so there are books to help you with things like, you know, for example, how to do diagramming effectively. There's a wonderful book um, called The Diagrams Book by Kevin Duncan, which is part of the same series or imprint, I guess. Um, no, imprint's the wrong word. Part of the same series uh, as mine. And they share in common that uh, that look and feel. And I guess they're all intended, um, and this was the real um, objective for the publisher, all intended to be something that you could just pick up at a train station or an airport, and you know you could sit and study it and adopt it over a long period of time, or you could just read it cover to cover in like two or three hours. Um, and they're not only you know designed to look and feel like a bit like a moleskin notebook, but you know they all have they all have uh, ex- let me start again. They'll all uh, make extensive use of diagrams. Um, and uh, with a lot of attention paid to the internal structure of the book. Well, uh, compliments to both you and your publisher. Then, um, <laughs> thank you. Do you w- which would you rather talk about first? What's actually written in the book, or the process of writing the book? 
let's start about the let's start with the content first. Okay, I I, mm. I think that's a good place to start. I jumped ahead to the paper before we talked about the content, so we'll we'll do that. <laughs> um, overexcited. You're talking. I guess. You're talking to someone who's literally two hours ago just spent about thirty pounds on fountain penny. I think that's, uh, <laughs> I, I I think we'll sympathize. We we have our priorities in sync then. Um, exactly. So so okay. So explain the overall concept of the book and then i specifically well you kind of already did so we talked it's 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 about habits uh one of the most intriguing areas uh of the book to me was the section well and the overriding theme of context and situational mm-hmm. awareness which i think are probably in the process of forming habits probably more relevant than most other factors uh and also, 100%. contexts in the sense of GTD have always been confusing to me and just about everyone I've talked to. So, where did you take the context idea? So, context, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's something which is confusing for people, and there are so many different interpretations of it. Um, I wanted to pre- I wanted to come up with this, with some idea of like a and this will sound very pretentious, uh, but something like a standard model of context almost, where uh, or some sort of um, unifying uh, concept which describes the different systems of contexts that people can come up with. Because, um, and I've heard David Allen talk about this many, many times, um, when Getting Things Done was written in, what was it, the early 2000s. Um, you know, if you wanted to do something involving the internet, you had to be at your computer. Or if you wanted to do something, uh, you know, because a lot of people, even back then, didn't necessarily have uh, cell phones. So right. if you wanted to call someone, you you had to be in a specific place. So a lot of the initial idea of context was based around the tools that you had available or the places that you where you you know where you might be. Um, and that never really worked for me. Um, even before I got smartphones and tablets and that sort of thing, because um, I actually um, have a mild form of bipolar disorder. And for me, the ability to work is defined as much by my mood as by the resources that I have available. And different people have different things. So, you know, I know some people with uh, conditions like chronic fatigue syndrome, where one's energy levels become very, very important. Um, And... um, you know, for other people, it might be a question of their focus. It might be a question of just how tired they are if it's the, you know, if it's the end of a long day. And you might be in the same place, the same building or office or library or whatever. But if you're in a, a very different mood, then you might as well be on a different planet. And I wanted to reflect that in the way that I consider context as well. That um, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so, and it's something which... Um, you have to build in the essential subjectivity of it because the system that I've developed for myself for contexts will not work for you and it won't work for most of your readers. So I wanted to describe a, um, a sort of, I guess, a sort of meta context system um, which anybody could use to come up with a system of context which is um, perfectly optimized for the way that they think. Um, so one of the concepts in the book is something called I call the context triangle. And uh, it's if you imagine a sort of an equilateral triangle um, 
and uh, uh, with time, space, and thought at each corner. Or time in one corner, space in another corner. You, you get the idea. Because every situation that you might find yourself in, every context, is a function of space, time, and thought. And time and thought define the stability and entropy of your environment, which is to say, are you likely to get interrupted? Are you likely to you know, be bothered by something? Or how much information is there in the environment? Are you in a bland office, which is kind of dull? Or are you having a walk through a park? Or are you at a concert? Or are you, you know, I don't know, in a, um, you know, a buzzing cafe with a lot more information floating in that environment? Because in that case, um, when there's a lot of entropy, a lot of information around you, it tends to um, uh, make it easier to go into sort of an open creative mode, something associative, something more uh, playful, I guess you could say. Whereas if it's maybe not so stable or if it's um, you know a bit less information, um, like an office, you tend to be a little bit more focused, a little bit more, I don't want to say anxious, but I can't think of a better word. Um, <laughs> That's what it is for me. That, <laughs> maybe. But that doesn't necessarily lend itself to the creation of new ideas or the synthesis of new ideas. But it's perfectly sufficient and in fact probably slightly better if you're going to be editing and i know from writing you know there's a big difference between writing which is in my opinion getting great ideas out of your head and structuring them so turning them and polishing them into a finished product so even just considering stability and entropy and then matching that to what kind of creativity do i require closed or open um and then, okay, well, if I've got a job which requires that I need to edit a paper, well, I'm probably not going to go to a cafe to do that. I'm probably going to just go to a slightly more information-poor environment to do that where I can just knuckle down and focus for a couple of hours. But if I need to start coming up with some brand new ideas, I'm not going to do that in an office. I'm going to go to a park. I'm going to go to uh, a cafe. I'm going to go to a bookshop or something like that. Um, I won't explain the whole concept, the whole, <laughs> the whole lot, because otherwise we'll be here for hours. But the essence is that I want to relate space, time, and thought to availability, attention, and in this case, creativity. And if you know what kind of availability, which is to say, you know, do I need a tool with me? Do I need to be in a particular place, or can I be in any place? If you know what kind of attention you need, do I need to be deeply focused, or is just a bit of shallow attention required? Um, and that's defined very to a great extent by your mood. Sure. Um, or do I need to have open or closed creativity? If you know that, then you can relate your tasks back to your context. Yeah. And then so without without asking you to divulge the entire contents of the book, which which I do <laughs> recommend anyone who anyone who has like this has piqued their curiosity, get the book. But um, mm. can you name, like, just an example name of one of the contexts generated by this method? So for me, one of the most important ones is open creativity and deep attention. Okay. So open creativity and deep attention. Um, so because, again, a context is a, is a function of this, uh, is a function of space, time, and thought. Um, so if I need to come up with some great new ideas or if I need to, or maybe not great ideas, um, or if I need to, you know, just go and start solve, if I need to go and just solve problems, um, then I need to be in an open mood and I need deep attention 
And what that means is that I need a stable environment with a, with you know with a good amount of information in floating around in that environment, whether that's background conversation or visual noise or whatever. I need to be in a specific place. There are a few places which work well for me, and I need to probably be in a pretty good mood. And based on that information, I can then make a decision and say, you know what, I need to do this kind of work and I'm in this kind of mood. I'm going to go to one of my favorite spots, which in my case happens to be the British Library, um, which is uh, one of the world's biggest libraries. And it's 15 minutes down the road for me. So that's kind of convenient. Um, and it means I can just go there or block out that time on the calendar and just get it done. I like that so a lot. It gives lot. you that level of control. Yeah, I uh, I have similar uh mental issues, mild bipolar, attention deficit, things like that. And I do hit mm. these, these moods that really, uh, uh, contextual, like a, a change of space can help, but mm. there'll be these moods where I absolutely cannot work on anything that is at all imposing to me, like a large project. Mm. So I have a context that's just called help me. And it's all of these little projects that I know I could do in 15 minutes that are the only things I know I can do in those moods. Um, and having that context has actually helped me a lot uh, to be able to stay productive because if I don't do anything, I go into like this downward spiral of uh, feeling like I'm never going to get anything done. So so I, I, I feel like um, that the, the entire formula for a new type of context is extremely important, especially mm -hmm. like you said, the idea of like office does not mean anything anymore because everyone's mm -hmm. office is always with them now and online. What, what, <laughs> what is offline? <laughs> it sounds like heaven in 2016, <laughs> I guess, doesn't it? Yeah. That's a, that's a cruise with a cellular blocker. Um, <laughs> Do you find that when you are, even if you're in a bad, if you're in a bad place, but you can still tick stuff off, does that help your mood to at least feel like you've got some sense of progress? In those particular moods that I'm describing, no. Okay. Uh, they are. There's a high level of anxiety uh, mentally when I'm in those moods that isn't necessarily necessarily related to anything real. Mm. It's just this constant feeling of fear. Mm. And and this is a conversation from my psychiatrist, not for you. But <laughs> um, but yeah, at those points, checking off two minute tasks doesn't help me. Uh, just actually finding something I can focus on until that mood passes does help me. And if and it happens to be productive, great. So would they tend to be little tiny sundry tasks? You know, uh, the sort of thing you can knock off in a minute or is it something are they things that still maybe need a little bit more attention but don't require too much cognition um somewhere in between there uh they're usually okay. things i can do they're, they're often uh very unprofitable unproductive things like scripting or cooking that i want to try but uh, don't really benefit me in any way or further any of my projects, but they are something that I can both mentally and physically focus on until I get out of that particular context. I'm with you. I'm with you. It's an emergency, <laughs> emergency well, context. I think, I think Brett, what's fascinating about this is that you and I are clearly, um, you know, we're not neurotypical. Um, most people are probably lucky enough not to have the sort of conditions that we have. 
but equally we are in a position where we can kind of battle test these ideas because we're <laughs> uniquely constrained in this yeah. respect. And yeah. the things that we might discover and the things that, you know, the way that we might work now, whether that's, you know, my attempt to try and combine um, uh, space, time and thought and define that as a context or a situation um, and your situational awareness so your awareness of your mood which is you quite clearly are very very aware of your moods and then your ability to match that to the kind of work which you might be able to do in that situation but also why would you do that sort of work if it's if it's not there to make you feel better but if it's there just to give you something to get your teeth into which is stop me if i'm wrong but that seems to be what you're doing yeah it's Um, a survival mechanism at that point right but that's a method that so many people could benefit from even if they don't necessarily need to do it but they might still want to do it because it's it's going to help them even if it isn't a matter of of survival as you put it well and when i say survival i mean it helps me get through what usually lasts for maybe an hour or two and then be Mm. able to continue with actually productive things afterwards instead of ending my day precisely yeah so and and I honestly I did uh, I modified this system after you sent me the initial copy of this book long ago. Oh, really? <laughs> um, based based on your concepts, which uh, which I didn't I, I won't say that that particular context <laughs> fits into your guidelines very well, but your your guidelines inspired me to create that, and it has been very helpful for me. The important thing with any of this, Brett, is that look, you know, what, no one's going to remember you when you're dead because of your productivity system. <laughs> Right. Except no, perhaps David Allen, who will probably perhaps. probably always be remembered for GTD. Quite possibly. I don't know how he'd <laughs> feel about that. But um, look, you know what? The important thing is, is does it work? Right. This is this is the this is the test. This is the ultimate thing. Now, it doesn't matter how elegant it is. It doesn't matter how philosophically pleasing it is. And it doesn't matter how clever it makes, you know, you and I feel to talk about this kind of stuff. The important thing is, is does it work for the person concerned? And if it works, then fantastic. Now, could it work as well as, you know, does it work as well as it could? Well, this is something that as, you know, people who think about this stuff, we constantly try to test this and challenge this. And, um, you know, I still think of myself as a student of all of this, but, you know, I don't think I've mastered any of this. I wouldn't um, trust anyone who thought they did. Well, who I also struggle? wouldn't trust anyone who is, as you put it, um, uh, neurotypical (laughs) i feel like people who have challenges deserve to write about it more because they can even for people who don't have the same challenges i would trust the person who overcame something to get there right well it's uh (laughs) absolutely makes perfect sense so one of the uh one of the topics that's also uh very uh consistent through your book is the idea of the data dump which isn't new to anyone who's studied uh, GTD or, you know, worked in any of the modern, you know, uh, last 20 years worth of getting things done ideas, uh, the idea of just getting things out of your brain. Um, but there are a couple of satellite issues related to that, that I think you could speak to. Um, the first would be privacy and security, uh, in, in regards to getting creative ideas out. Totally, totally. Um, and uh, you know, we were talking about this before um, before recording, and um, it's actually something I didn't talk about in the book. 
um, quite deliberately um, because um, it's not. It, it, it's one of those. It's one of these areas which could date the book, and I wanted to avoid that. Sure. Um, I want it to. Be, I want it to be something that's going to be relevant in twenty years. And if I start talking about, you know, issues that are current as of 2015, 2016, um, then it's going to feel quite anachronistic, even in two or three years from now. Sure. Um, privacy and information security. So, I there's this constant battle between security and convenience, <laughs> and um, but let me preface this. I should say before, um, you know, getting into productivity and, um, you know, like what I've done, my work, my work background, um, has involved a great deal of work in information security. It's something I've, I've been doing for, um, near on 10 years in one form or another. Um, I don't say that to puff myself up. I'm just saying that because I've seen a lot of people get this wrong. Um, and people think that they can have both security and convenience and um, there are certain things that you can do uh, like you know simple things like enabling full disk encryption on your computer which has a very very minimal impact on your convenience but a massive impact on your security but by and large it means that you know I gotta think and I want to think about the way that I use um, different services I wouldn't touch Evernote with a barge pole I wouldn't go near it if it doesn't, you know, because it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't have um, a level of encryption. I have to basically trust that that service is um, is doing the right thing, and trust is not enforceable with math. Right. So, in in that case, um, in the case of Evernote, now in in other cases, trust is enforceable with math. Um, you know, if you look at uh, different sort of ways of encrypting your data on your hard drive so that I will trust. The reason this is important though, ignoring all the crypto babble, is that when you get information out of your head, now whether that's taking a note on a bit of paper or putting a task into your task manager, whatever, um, it's a form of cognition. So it's basically getting it out of your head into some sort of external system, some sort of technology, whether that's a laptop or a cuneiform clay tablet it doesn't matter um <laughs> you know it's still technology right and yeah, it's still yeah. part of the same you know continuum and you capture it and then you review it at the right time it's a form of memory literally it is memory and i consider that that information is as private as my own thoughts and it's the moment when I decide that I'm going to publish that information, I'm going to put it up on the internet, I'm going to send it off to someone else, whatever. That's the point when it ceases to become memory and starts to become information that I put into the public domain. But until that moment, until I've decided to push publish or send or whatever, um, that is kind of sacrosanct, in my opinion. And I consider that information as you know, as important to my cognition as my own thoughts. And I don't want that information to be penetrable in any any more than I would or any any more than I would want my own thoughts to be penetrable. So I want to protect it. Now, does that mean that, you know, I think that anyone would be interested? Well, I doubt it. But for me it's a point of principle. Because it's kind of like having a safe space, and I think anyone who's been, you know, sort of uh, startled 
when they thought they were private and it turns out that they weren't, whether that's something benign or, you know, or whatever. And we get into this whole question, which is very politically, you know, uh, hot at the moment of, you know, state surveillance. And if do you have anything to hide if you've got, you know, if, do you have anything to fear if you've got nothing to hide, which personally I think is a ridiculous argument. Um, <laughs> I, I used to think it was, uh, I, I used to think like that, but in the last couple of years, yeah, I'm definitely with you. It's yeah. bizarre not to think that at this point. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm not, I don't do anything especially interesting in my bathroom, but I wouldn't want someone installing a camera there. Well, and see, and that this comes down to something I've noticed. Uh, when I want to be creative, uh, writing is the only way I can do it. Uh, transcription does not work for me because I get stage fright just with my phone. And right. Siri, Siri scares me. Siri is like talking to a pretty girl in high school for me. As soon as I start to put the thought together, I start stuttering. And then she immediately comes back and like, I didn't understand what you said. And, and that, you know, I feel like bashful, go run to the corner. And it's not conducive to, uh, like, creative thought has to uh, build on the initial spark. Like, you have to be able to mm-hmm. kind of expound on any thought. And even when you are, you know, purely internal in your head, any kind of stage fright, and for me, and I assume for most people, is inhibitive. And having that security, that safe space, whether you're talking about digital encryption or, you know, personal privacy, mm. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, what you're really doing with, you know, encryption as it is at the moment is you're trying to protect your space, your safe space to play. Yeah. Almost. And you are making it so that you can trust it. And that's the, that's the important question. If you can't trust your safe space, then it isn't feel doesn't feel like a safe space and then you will quite naturally feel inhibited from doing anything you know from doing and exploring um in the way that you might if it was completely private now i'm not suggesting that um you know you're suddenly going to go and join some sort of terrorist organization or do anything sort of you know awful um but as a point of principle i feel that i think that's really important and I don't necessarily want to be in a world where um, an important part of my cognition is subject to the attention of other people before I want it to be. I totally get it. I, 100%. <laughs> I don't even want Siri to know <laughs> until I'm ready for it to be. Um, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The other topic that uh, we mentioned and is of uh, interest to me is the idea of data backup techniques. Mm, mm, absolutely. And absolutely. you do talk about that in the book. I do. Well, I, 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 I sort of explain that it's necessary. I don't think I really go into a, a huge amount of detail about it because, again, it goes out of scope. But, um, you know, we said on our, on our um, call a little earlier that um, if you don't get backups correct, considering that you are going to be using some form of information technology um, again, whether that's analog or whether that's digital, it doesn't matter. Um, but if you if you're going to use that as a part of your cognition, I mean that's high stakes stuff. That's really important stuff. Um, then you are a few, uh, if you haven't got backups correct, you are a few electrons away from having a very bad day <laughs> or or month. Right, exactly. Um, I've got four principles that I use when I talk about backup. And I've been doing this for years. 
um, and it's very, very simple. Number one is that it's got to be a duplication of data. Um, so uh, it's so that's very simple. We can understand that quite quite easily. If you've got a copy of data and that's live, you want if you've got data which is live, you want to copy that and that's backup. Not quite though, because um, people often think that just storing it in some cloud syncing service, for example. Um, is a backup. Well, it isn't. Um, if you've got something in Dropbox, it ain't a backup. Um, because if you make a change to that file, it's synchronized automatically across that service. And I pick on Dropbox, there are dozens of others. Um, some of them have the ability to go back in time and restore data somewhat, but it really isn't what the service is designed to do. Um, so as a rule of thumb, um, syncing ain't backup. Um, so you've got to duplicate your data. Um, the second is that it's ideal to have it incremental. So you want to be able to go back in time to recover data to see how it might have looked in the past. Lots of different incremental backup tools out there. Um, third is automatic. If you have to think about it, it probably won't happen. And you can do your best to habitualize it. You can you know, just get into the habit of plugging in that USB cord into your computer whenever you sit down, or better yet, have some sort of docking station which will do that for you know as a, as a result of hooking up to a monitor, whatever. Um, but it's better to just have it scheduled so you never have to think about it. And uh, uh, I suppose number four is if you really care about the data, you want two tiers of backup, uh, one of which is on site, so with you in your office or home, and that will help you to recover if there's you know, like a, something relatively minor, like a computer has, like the computer's failed or, you know, something like that. Um, but also a copy off-site, um, which will protect you against things like floods, fires, thefts, power surges, meteorite strikes, that sort of thing. And once you get that right, um, then you're going to be pretty much safe against anything short of a nuclear war. Um, and then you've got bigger problems. <laughs> so if you, if you had to, okay, let me let me say I have followed all four of these for years now and and I agree with all of the concepts. I do have a quibble with the idea of Dropbox and revisions though because mm. there's actually an app called Revisions that hooks into my paid Dropbox account where I pay for unlimited history and mm. I can see and revert individual or groups of changes across time going back as far as I like. And for me, that is, I think Dropbox is actually a pretty ideal tool for that kind of thing. I don't have my entire life in Dropbox, mm. but for, especially for brainstorming, uh, it's where all my mind maps and NVLT notes and research uh, saved websites, all of it goes into a Dropbox folder mm. that I can see history on. Um, so it, uh, uh, barring that, what do you recommend in that area? Well, I think that's pretty cool, actually, and I wasn't aware that it was quite as robust as it was. I tried it in the past, and I didn't feel quite so confident about it. Well, because um, with Dropbox, the only <laughs> way to access that is through their admittedly lacking web interface, mm. but revisions for Mac is excellent for that. I also feel that, um, okay, two things. First, if I'm using one vendor, and I'm relying on that for both sync of my live data between my devices and, okay, actually three points, I suppose. Um, but to cover off the first one, um, sync of live data between all of my devices, and I'm relying on one vendor for that. Um, 
there's also the consideration of what happens if that vendor goes under, if they get bought out or if they, you know, no company lasts forever. Um, so redundancy between, so redundancy against one of your vendors failing is also worth considering. Now, you know, that's obviously going to depend on how important your data is to you. If you're, if you've got uh, the livelihoods of 10 of your employees, which depend on that data, then I'd certainly think about it. If it's just one person and, you know, you can survive without it, then, hey, maybe that's not such an issue. Um, the other thing that's worth considering is that you're not necessarily going to want to sync all of your data. So there's a big difference between what you're working on right now, being your current projects, and your archive, which is the stuff that you might have, you know, done over time. Now, uh, you and I, I suspect most of what most of our archives are plain text. Yep. I think the last, uh, I guess, the last 18 years of my work probably takes up no more than about 70 megabytes. Um, so that's easily synced. But uh, if you're in video or photography, um, it probably doesn't make a huge amount of sense to sync five terabytes of data between all of your devices unless you really need it. Um, Which so I would say, again, Dropbox has selective sync, as does uh, BitTorrent sync. Um, mm -hmm. To that end, though, I do all of my BitTorrent sync and Dropbox folders go into both Time Machine and my uh, clone backups and my offsite backups just because for, for the reason that you you listed uh, where if Dropbox ever went out of business, mm. my backups would be shot. So I don't depend entirely on that. So that's nailed. That's, you've, <laughs> you've nailed it, except perhaps for my third uh, point, which is to do, which goes back to security. Yes. Um, and again, this is going to vary according to... Um, according to different people. Uh, I'm not comfortable storing the plain text. I'm not comfortable storing unencrypted copies of my work, my notes, my research in Dropbox because I have to trust Dropbox and I, I know a little bit about the way they store their information. And as a general rule of thumb, if you, um, if you have the ability to recover a forgotten password, then by necessity, <laughs> that service has to have a copy of your private key. Right. Um, and consequently, I, I do use Dropbox actually, oddly enough, as a backup target, but uh, one of my picks will be uh, uh, a tool which allow, allows me to actually repurpose Dropbox as a backup target, but in such a way that all of the data is fully encrypted with a key that only I have. That That is of interest to me. I have in the past used um, encrypted disk image files, mm. uh, like sparse disk images on Dropbox to mm. for that reason. But that has caused like the synchronizing those. I've lost data because of errors in that case. So yeah. I am definitely I'm looking forward to that pick. Sparse images are pretty cool if you're if you've got like a. This is where we go a bit uh, a, a go a bit techy. But if you've got a um, like a WebDAV server or an, an FTP server, yeah, and then you've got an app like something like ChronoSync, which will allow you to, uh, or even RSync, which will allow you to. Um, synchronize according to a schedule but if you're sh if you're syncing pretty much all of the time as data is changing which is kind of the way the dropbox works um then it's not ideal yeah yeah that makes sense all right so <laughs> we're, we're we are kind, we're <laughs> I'll kind take of off uh, my propeller helmet yeah um well keep it on for one second because you mentioned in an, an email to me that one of the topics of interest to you was a love of handwriting markdown, oh, which yes. <laughs> uh, I I have no 
I don't even know where to start with that, so I'm going to let you. All right. Well, um, I do all of my writing by hand, um, which is to say I do all of my idea capture by hand, um, and then I write it up on the computer. Um, but when I'm actually doing anything, what I, uh, you know, a creative or synthesizing new ideas, I do it all by hand. And for me, working, you know, just getting ideas out on a page is very important, but I also need to have some sort of very simple markup system, which allows me to, um, identify, you know, just simple things like, you know, are these bullet points, are these, um, you know, headings or subheads or are these, you know, what's the general structure if I'm just maybe trying to sort of handwrite an outline? Um, because I quite rarely handwrite prose. Um, uh, I'll actually just tend to, most of my handwriting tends to look like some sort of structure because I don't need to worry about grammatical, uh, you know, grammatical finesse. I'm just coming up with ideas. And that's, you know, it's where I write it up that I can start expanding on it because I'm not necessarily creating new information at that point. I'm just expressing it in a more disciplined way. Um, so Markdown is for me just the easiest way to reflect that structure, whether that's a couple of, um, hash symbols, or I guess you call them pound signs. Um, no, I call them hash symbols. Oh, perfect. (laughs) Nobody uses them as pound signs anymore. And in my world, a hash bang is way more common than a hashtag. So, well, I guess yours is your (laughs) keyboard shortcut for that must be shift three. That's correct. Whereas, uh, that creates the actual pound sterling sign on a British keyboard. (laughs) So uh, mine's like option three in order to create it. Anyway, fun fact, fun <laughs> yeah. fact for you, which is almost entirely useless for everybody else. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just little. It just it's a really quick way for me to just put in a little structure, and just so that when I look at my notes later on, um, it's human readable, and I could just write it up as Markdown if I'm feeling a bit rubbish and I'm not feeling very creative. I can still write it up. Um, and thus, you know, have it subject to my backup strategy, which is always useful. And then when I need to go back to it, it's very easy. The structure makes sense, whether it's on a computer, whether where, whether it's uh, on a page, on, on a handwritten page. And so for me, it fulfills one of the initial criteria that um, John Gruber used when creating Markdown, which is that it's got to be uh, something that a machine can process, but it's also got to be something that a human can read and have it make sense. Um, so for me, it's just that's just the logical way to write. Um, Plus, my handwriting is um, kind of old-fashioned. I use a fountain pen. It's very cursive. Um, and so just if I can just add a glance, my page makes sense. So here's uh, a question. Go for it. I uh, th- This would address part of the reason that I don't handwrite notes, but the primary reason is that I handwriting is very difficult for me. And even with years of practice, Mm. I find it slow and laborious and almost illegible. Even to me after a certain period of time, my, my handwritten notes have a very short lifespan. If I go back to them too late Mm. to transcribe them into a digital form, I won't remember what they meant because I don't write full sentences I don't write clearly or neatly. I don't write with a lot of structure, which what you're talking about could fix. But Mm. if I don't get back to them, probably within about two days, I will have no idea what they mean. Mm. Why is that? Um, Is it just that you're not capturing enough information? It's partly that. It's partly because things that seem obvious to me at the time within a context where I'm coming up with the idea or Mm. taking the note, 
don't exist in my mind after two days, and I didn't consider them important enough at the time, which is a product of perhaps a lack of um, awareness of my Mm. surroundings, things that I take for granted, but also because I'm usually in a hurry. And like I said, I find writing by hand to be a chore, Mm. so I'm not inclined to go too far with it. I do better with mind mapping by hand. Mm. And I will often do that in a notebook is uh, just jot down the ideas and then kind of make the connections. Something that given to me later, I could continue building on way more easily than I could a few sentences that I scribbled on a page. Well, I guess, okay, you know, remember what I said last time, the or what I said a little earlier rather, which is that if this if the technique works for you, that's fantastic, and I'm not here to sell one particular technique to you. Um, that being said, there's one interesting observation there, which is something I see fairly often in people, which is, uh, and I think, again, um, both David Allen and Merlin Mann have, have spoken about this. Um, if you're capturing information that makes a lot of sense to you at the time, so if I write down the word mum, um, and that makes perfect sense because I know why I'm writing down the word mum. I've got to buy my mum a present. I've got to, you know, whatever, give her a call or something. Um, I might not necessarily have a, all of that additional contextual information in two or three days. So if you write down, instead of writing the subject um, or just the object of your intention, write it down as a full sentence. And a, sent- a full sentence has got to consist of both, a, uh, well, of all three a subject, a verb, and an object. The cat sat on the mat. Um, Or in the case of a task, you would express it as a verb, subject, and object, but it's the same principle. It's a proper sentence. So instead of just writing down mum, it might be um, call mum to ask about, you know, to ask whether she needs me to do shopping or buy mum a box of chocolate, whatever. Um, Because then it makes much more sense. And... I could look back on that two months afterwards and the task, the intention would still make sense. If I just write down mum and look at it two months afterwards, then that intention is lost. And that's all assuming you can read your own handwriting. Well, that helps. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I've thought maybe if I just practice enough, but then I just always have this uh, constant temptation to pull out an iPhone or a keyboard. And like you said, that that's faster and more effective for me. So I tend to stick with it. And hey, if it works, but I would also say as well, the fact that handwriting is slow, laborious, and painful, yeah, it can hurt. Um, if you're trying to write 2,000 words in one sitting, then you know, you're going to need a break. Um, that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a different property of the, of the technology. And unlike a keyboard, where there's much less cost associated with typing, um, what I mean by that is that if you look at it in economic terms, uh, a, a typed word is much less scarce right? And, theref- and therefore arguably less valuable. An option backspace takes a lot less time than uh, erasing. <laughs> right. You know, cut, copy and paste is probably as important <laughs> as, the, as the printing press, in my opinion. Yes. Um, but the handwritten word is laborious and it's slow and it sort of feels a little bit more valuable and you're using, you're exercising different parts of your brain when you're using, when you're handwriting. If you consider the number of movements that it takes in a pen that it takes for you to, or the number of discrete shapes that you create when you write your signature. Um, so my name's Ben Elijah and that consists of several different letters, but I'm only making two shapes because it's all joined up. 
Yeah. And this is more akin to painting than it is to typing. Yeah. So, just a thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I guess based on time, we should skip to our, our top three picks. Um, I, might, I might have to have you back on because we had, we had considered talking about the, uh, the publishing process, which I think would be of interest to a lot of people. Um, mistakes made and, uh, and errors yeah. that crept into the book uh, for which I apologize. And uh, yes, it's uh, <laughs> an interesting, an interesting topic. So that may be part two. This episode of Systematic is brought to you by PDF Pen from Smile. PDF Pen is your Swiss army knife for PDF Foo. It's got all the basics covered, such as filling and signing forms, making edits, highlighting and OCRing. And you can go further with redaction, word export and page numbering plus page numbering's fancy cousin Bates numbering, which will be of particular interest to legal professionals. You can create interactive PDF forms, PDFs from websites, and export in common formats like Excel, PowerPoint, and PDF archives. You can even take PDF Pen on the road with PDF Pen for iPad and iPhone. If you run a paperless office, you can scan your old papers straight into PDF Pen to OCR them, and you can make corrections and add highlights, notes, and redactions. And you can even build your own workflows for PDF Pen with AppleScript and JavaScript for automation. Some lesser known features of PDF Pen include the ability to print specific non-contiguous pages just by selecting their thumbnails in the sidebar, and a cool feature that lets you easily crop a page or an entire document to your current selection. PDF Pen and PDF Pen Pro are fully compatible with El Capitan. See what PDF Pen can do for you at smilesoftware.com systematic and thanks again to Smile. So, uh, we'll do the top three picks back and forth, um, round robin, one at a time, starting with you. Okay. Well, my first one is uh, the backup tool um, that I mentioned, uh, which allows me to repurpose lots of different kinds of uh, storage, including things like Dropbox as a backup target. And it's a tool called Arc, which is uh, A-R-Q. And uh, if I remember correctly, the website is arcbackup.com. And I love it. I think it's fantastic. Um, the guy behind it's done a really, really great job. Um, it works a little differently to like turnkey services like uh, like Backblaze and uh, Carbonite and CrashPlan and those guys. Um, because rather than um, a service that's, that you pay a subscription for, um, it's like it's it's more just like a toolkit, and I can then use it to create incremental backups, um, and then target them at services like you know Amazon S3 or Google Drive or Dropbox, and uh, I think quite a few others. I could even have my own uh, my own server as well if I wanted to. Um, and he's just nailed it. Um, there's a tool called Backup Bouncer, um, which allows you to test the veracity of your backups, and um, Basically, I think Arc is like only one of maybe two or three that scores 100%, um, including things like the file metadata. Um, and it's incremental. It goes back in time, thin backups, deduplication, all the buzzwords, all the, all the good stuff. Um, crucially, client-side encryption, and the encryption is implemented pretty much perfectly. Um, and as much as <laughs> encryption can be implemented perfectly, it's, he's done it very, very well. And um, it just means that, you know, I've got a really, really solid backup. I can take advantage of, you know, almost limitless cloud storage. Um, and yet I'm satisfying the security and privacy requirements that I have. Nice. I am a, I am an Arc user. In fact, I, I paused it right before this call started. Um, 
I use it with an SFTP server uh, awesome. off of Mac Mini Colo, but I have used it with Dropbox and I've used it with S3 and Glacier. Yes. And Glacier mm-hmm. is um, amazingly cheap cloud storage. It is slow to restore from. Mm-hmm. Um, and you pay most of the fees if you have to actually restore. Uh, so it can bite you in the end, which is, I find SFTP to be faster. And like like we've been talking about, I own it. Like it's on my own box on an external hard drive that I control. And it's still a good remote backup. But I don't have to trust any company other than Mac Mini Colo. But I completely trust Brian Stucky with it. So, <laughs> so important. And isn't it? <laughs> Another consideration when it comes to this stuff as well, which is that for backups, speed is almost irrelevant. As if you're not working off that data live, speed is not so important. Now, obviously, if the rate at which your data changes is greater than the rate at which you can upload data, so if you, uh, you know, if you change an average of say 50 gigabytes of data per day, but you can only upload 20 gigabytes, then you're going to fall further behind. But as long as the rate at which you can upload is greater, then your backups will, will always catch up. Um, obviously, if you've got a huge amount of data to begin with, and it's going to take months to back up that initial data set, then you know that can be an issue. But yeah, well, know, by and large, I don't know if uh, if like Backblaze does it, but um, Dolly Drive actually lets you. They'll send you a a hard drive. You dump your initial backup onto it and send it back to them, and they'll use it to kickstart. So if you have, you know, 180 mm-hmm. gigs you need backed up, uh, you can kickstart that backup. And then from that point on, just do incremental backups. It's a so little it's- harder to pull off with ARC and S3. But like you said, I mean, I've never waited. There's been usually about a week when I start a new backup set uh, mm-hmm. before it's completely caught up and keeping up with me. But a week of constant backing up in the background has never uh, been an issue for me and you can throttle it as well can't you right yep and you can throttle it and schedule it with arc i mean I, as a rule of thumb i think if you can perform your initial backups within a month and i mean you know i'm typically i can typically get about um two or three uh, megs up um at any time um so i could easily do multiple gigabytes upload per day um Obviously, if you're on dial-up, that's a different story. Um, <laughs> Nobody remembers you, what that is. Well, um, if uh, I guess if you can do your initial backups within about a month, then you know I think that's pretty cool for most people. Yeah, I consider that reasonable. All right. Well, good pick. Um, my first pick is an app called Quiver on the Mac uh, for people who take notes that are more than just. Uh, text quiver provides a notebook that can create cells so within a single note you can have text cells uh, latex like math cells uh, code cells and image cells and then it, it creates notes using a json format that is technically still plain text like you could open it in any other editor and process it. It's not human readable plain text, but it's not a database storage format. Um, so that gives it both the flexibility for more advanced note taking without taking away my uh, fears of portability or data loss because of a single database storage. 
Um, and it's it's good looking. It lets you tag and you can sort and categorize notes. So I saw you, um, was it an email you sent out? Um, like a monthly update or something? Um, and it looked awesome. Is it, is, it, is it like a sort of personal wiki? Um, no, I wouldn't. I mean, wiki to me implies very uh, cross-linked notes. Right. It's great at organizing notes, but it doesn't build out the kind of uh, cross-linked notes you would, I think, want if you were going to call something a personal wiki. And how would it compare to something like, say, DevonThink? Um, like where, where would you put how would you rate how would you compare the two it's far more manual than devon think the beauty right. of devon think the thing that's always amazed me about devon think is the auto indexing and what do they call it uh characterization or see also in classify classify yeah classification classify. of of text like it's not going to do that for you it'll give you a full text search but as far as correlating notes together automatically nothing like that it's uh, it's basically a hyped uh, or a, a, a version of NBLT on steroids for people that need to include things like LaTeX and and code blocks easily into their notes. I love that it works with LaTeX though. Um, yeah, that, that's rare actually. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I've been playing around with LaTeX over the last uh, the last few weeks, and um, my my brother's a professional scientist, uh, a neuroscientist, and um, he can make uh, he can make LaTeX absolutely dance. I can just about make it wiggle its toes. <laughs> yeah, that's, but well, it's that's so where I'm cool. at. <laughs> yeah, I have a and, friend. I have friends who swear by it, but I don't do a lot of equations either. So I ju- I'm just I just like um, just like pretty typography, and yeah. um, there's just the pleasure of there's a there's a little package in LaTeX called Microtype, which um, does something like I, I, it's probably a really bad description, but it, it's like microscopic adjustments of things like your line justification and the, and kerning and the distance between words, just so that um, like the uh, the end of your uh, text, the justification at the end of at the end of a text block is like as sharp as a razor, and I just love that that exists. Yeah, um, I I might I probably should make this a second pick, but you should take a look at uh, tech boilerplates which is at M-R-Z-O-O-L dot C-C slash T-E-X. Um, yeah, T-E-X dash boilerplates. And I'll, I'll link that in the show notes and I can just shoot you that link right now. But it's, it's a good example of typesetting with LaTeX uh, in a completely non-mathematics related uh, fashion. So, Well, that's my free time evaporated for the week. Thank you. <laughs> it's what I do. <laughs> so there i shot that to you in skype but um all right Perfect, thank you so yeah it's it your or? turn yes um so mine is uh so it's both a book and um i think a, a series of 50 episodes on a, a podcast episodes um it's called writing tools by a guy called roy peter clark and uh, if memory serves he's at the pointer institute which is a like a journalism school and um if you're interested in writing or if you if you want to just sort of get a little bit better as a writer or even if you're like a professional writer, um, there's stuff in there for everybody. I mean, it covers simple things like, you know, just how to, um, you know, create a, uh, you know, how just how to create strong copy, how to make good use of the passive and active voice or how to, um, you know, master the long sentence, you know, things like that. Um, 
and you know practice stuff as well like you know the importance of collecting string i think is a word he uses or get you know going into detail and it's just you know for the sake of what's probably like no more than a hundred minutes of audio for free on itunes um let alone the book um there's stuff in there which i just continually go back to and um yeah, uh, if you're if if you're in the business of putting uh, putting words on a page, um, just 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 pause this and look at it. It's awesome. That is that sounds um, excellent because one of the things I admired about your writing is that you applied things that I would most appreciate in a fiction book to very um, edu- like academic type of writing, which Thank I've you. always considered two very different forms of writing. And you blended them in a way that I don't know if I'd previously considered was possible. And it sounds like this book kind of addresses that in a way that writing for academia or writing fiction books don't. You know, I learned so much just from listening to those podcasts for the first time a few years ago. And um, like I say, I have them continue. I have them saved um, on all of my devices. So if ever I'm, you know, sort of stuck for something, I can just sort of waste a bit of time and listen to it. Um, I would almost be tempted to include um, Natalie Goldberg's, uh, Goldberg's book, uh, Writing Down the Bones, um, as well. But if you're if you're just getting started, or I think if you just want a, a quick way to, you know, like brush up your writing, or if you're like a student writing a thesis or something like that, um, I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, of Roy Peter Clark. I think uh, definitely worth a look. Well, I have uh, I have included Natalie Goldberg's book in the uh, show notes, so people who want further info um all right well my number two is going to be an ios mail client called spark and this it it made the rounds a while back uh it's from readle or riaddle i don't know if i've ever heard anyone say that out loud but um uh there there's a new version coming currently it's only for iphone ipad version is coming but this after going through dozens of mail.app replacements this was my favorite absolute favorite it it has a a smart inbox that is really intelligent and works with my own custom inbox strategies uh very sane box uh service related um and doesn't try to force an inbox management strategy on me while still making it really easy to access like for example uh sane box creates a sane later folder for me and emails that aren't of the utmost urgency go into sane later and I can peruse them without getting notifications. I can escalate that to a top level mailbox in the sidebar of spark without having to every time drill into a specific account and go into that mailbox. And, uh, things like you can have multiple signatures and as you're writing, you can just swipe left on the signature that's showing to flip through the available signatures and that gesture-based features like that, and then all of the, you can completely customize left and right swipes, long left, long right. Uh, you can you can create your own uh, shortcut menu that pops up in a little uh, like uh, zodiac thing at the bottom. It's great. I love just about everything about it. The only negative thing I've heard is that if you use um, IMAP, a direct IMAP server with it. There was some privacy concern, like they were storing a password uh, and people didn't appreciate that. But I use it with my direct Gmail IMAP account and it never, you know, I authorize through two-factor authentication and I'm not 
I don't have any concerns there. It's such a cool app. I've been using it for about a month now. And it's, um, you know, you said about signatures. Um, I discovered something quite cool, which is that if you use it to compose a new message, um, which actually I quite rarely do, I, I mostly use drafts and then just send them out. Um, send them out from there and then draft and I use text expander to create uh, to use my signatures but I found that in um, uh, in spark and I don't know if I'm getting if I'm describing this in the most precise way but that it searches your previous outbound messages for things that look like signatures yes and then you can choose like this this sort of set of signatures that, that are correct and I just thought that was absolutely awesome it is I, I I never defined any signatures in it but I can flip through basically a history of every way I've signed an email in the past. Mm. And it's, yeah, it's really good at that. It's good at a lot of things. All I need now is PGP support and I'll be in my house. I know. Place. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I'm with you on that. In fact, uh, I'm on their beta right now. I, I will mention that for you. <laughs> awesome. Sounds good. All right. You're number three. Um, so it's, uh, it's a game and um, it's called Auralux which is A-U-R-A-L-U-X, uh, L-U-X um, at the end. And um, it's very difficult to describe. It's one of those games which are like mind-numbing, but completely addictive. And it's, it's, like, it's like if you, if you ever played threes, and you know how addictive threes is, yeah. um, Auralux just blows this away. I mean, it's, it's, it's like comparing... <laughs> it's, it, it, you, you can't it's like comparing pringles to heroin in terms of addictiveness it's unbelievable <laughs> and um it's it's just how can i describe it it's like you have this 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 sun and you can upgrade your suns with uh because each sun generates little ships or little dots and you can either choose them to take over other suns or attack other players suns or upgrade your own suns and it's basically just like very fast chess and uh it's the ultimate toilet game I have many of those. <laughs> I have not seen this one, though. So you, it's an iPhone game, then? It will ruin your life. All right. It will absolutely ruin your life, and I, I can't recommend it enough. I, uh, for me, uh, Monsters Ate My Metropolis has been that for a long time for me. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> which I like because, you know, you're, it's constant live competition. I feel better about wasting time if I'm competing with another real person. Right. I ha have a game on my phone called 1010. And it is a very simple puzzle game with absolutely no game center support or anything. So I'm always only competing against myself. And uh, two days ago, I beat my all-time high score and my brain just broke. I'm like, I have accomplished nothing. Nobody will ever know that I have achieved this except for me. And all I have to show for it is like way too much time in the bathroom. So <laughs> I... I like anything that involves a certain amount of at least like uh scoreboard or leaderboard kind of competition, but right. I'm with you. Well, this is the thing. <laughs> it's the thing with these games though, isn't it? Because like, I don't know. Did you ever play games like civilization yep. back in the day? Yeah. And you know how, I mean, you could quite happily play that for like 72 hours on the go. Yes. And you, you can't stop because just that one button, you could just have a little bit more power. <laughs> But it's games like this that only take like, you know, 10 minutes for, you know, per session or whatever. But it's like, again, it's the same thing. It's like you just have to have another go. And I mean, I could have probably written four books in the time that I've probably that I've wasted on Auralux. And it's just, I, I, yeah, 
Well, I've, <laughs> I've studied this and not well, but uh, the idea of intermittent reinforcement, like the kind of the gambling aspect of these games where you can put a lot of effort in. And as long as it rewards you once in a while, you keep wanting more. And then the, the there's a certain level of difficulty where if a game's too easy to begin with, you don't go. But if it's too difficult, you give up. So there's this perfect line of how complicated can a game be and how often do you have to be able to beat it? <laughs> and when you get that right, it is literally heroin. Oh my goodness. My psychiatrist is going to hate you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm upset with my psychiatrist already today. So <laughs> it's, I'm just passing it on. All right. Um, where are we then? That was your number three. So my number three, I think for my number three, I think I'm going to pick, um, I didn't have this one planned ahead of time. I'm going to pick an iOS game as well. And I'm going to pick trick shot, um, which is, it's one of those games that you really, you get nothing but the pleasure of beating yourself. Um, and that sounded like a steady, steady on, (laughs) um, uh, you, you basically, it's a puzzle game and there's only so many levels. And when you're done with it, you're done with it. You know, you can, you can get like one to three stars per level and then you can go back and try to achieve gold on every level. But I kind of like the fact that I've finished it. I can, I can delete it now, but it was really fun getting there. Uh, to, to describe it slightly, you basically, you're launching balls with a slightly inaccurate, unreplicatable uh, ex- acceleration. Like you get some idea how to repeat a shot, but you have to get a ball into a box without hitting certain other objects in each level. And it's one ball in one box, and you just have to find the perfect shot at the right angle and velocity to get there. And it's just frustrating enough. Like I said, that you just, you want to keep trying kind of the way that, um, King oddball was for me. So between tech boilerplates and trick shots, I imagine by about Wednesday this week, I'm going to be in the corner in the fetal position, rocking backwards and forwards. I'm going to, I'm going to make you get King oddball. If you haven't played that too, (laughs) just to ensure the straight jacket. What are you doing to me, man? <laughs> <laughs> King Oddball is like, it's a game. It's a great, you like, you swing rocks on the tip of the tongue of a bizarre monster and try to knock over tanks and helicopters. And it seems very childish, but it, it, it hooks you. And then you get to points in the game where things come up and you can, there's like a phone and you jump on the phone and it comes up and it's a little like AI bot that you can ask questions and talk to completely ungame related, but it's full of stuff like that. It's crazy. And then there are levels where you open the level and it's actually a hundred extra levels <laughs> like it, and it's available for Apple TV now too. It's, I recommend that one. All right. Well, if you're looking, if you're looking for a padded room, I recommend that one. That, that's giving me a few things to play with. And I think, meantime, my credibility as a productivity author has just gone down the toilet. But uh, nonetheless. <laughs> I'm sorry I ruined you. Um, that's quite all right. right. So that's, uh, that's three and three. And we'll wrap there. Uh, people can find you at uh, inkandben.com, where they can also find your book uh, at inkandben. What's the uh, slash TPH? 
Uh, so, yeah, so Ink and Ben, I-N-K-A-N-D-B-E-N uh, slash T-P-H. Inkandben.com slash T-P-H. And then Ink and Ben will also work on Twitter for you. Is there anywhere else you want to link people? No, that's, uh, I think that's that's fine. Um, all right. Yeah, I'm I'm awful with social media, um, so uh, help. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I will I will include both of those in the show notes. I am uh, I'm Brett Terpstra. I am TT Scoff everywhere. Uh, you can also follow Systematic on Twitter at S Y S T M C A S T Systemcast. Um, so uh, do that, and then uh, feel free to leave. Uh, iTunes reviews because I enjoy reading them and uh, and they make me feel warm and fuzzy. So thanks for being here, Ben. Thanks for having me. It was uh, an excellent conversation. Hopefully, hopefully our uh, overseas Skype issues will uh, <laughs> be forgiving for us. Yeah, we've had some fun with this, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> Weeks of it. <laughs> All right. Well, um, that's uh, episode... I think 155 and uh, and we'll see everybody in a couple of weeks thanks for listening Thank you.